Hello, it's wonderful to be with you and open God's Word with you. It's a wonderful privilege to be able to do that. My name's Greg, I'm one of the ministers at OEC, and as we come to God and His great Word, won't you join me in prayer? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the wonder of what you've done in speaking to us in your Word. We do pray that you would help us to understand it. We pray more importantly that you would help us to sit under you as we hear you speak. Help us to respond in repentance and faith. Help us to be struck again by the wonder of what you've done in your Son. Um, and we pray that you would work your great work by your Spirit to make us more like him. And we pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen. Have you ever been in the presence of greatness, of a, of a celebrity that you admire, or a, or a person of significant re renown? I can't claim to have met the Queen or even the Prime Minister or, or an international superstar like an actor uh, or a music idol, but there are two times when I've come close. Uh, one was Peter Garrett, who at the time was lead singer of Midnight Oil, but I didn't actually get to speak with him. I just got close to him, really. But I did spend a little bit of time with triple Olympian and Olympic finalist Melinda Gainsford-Taylor. Now, I suspect this might come as a bit of a surprise to most of you, but I used to be a runner. I know that's hard to believe. A sprinter, even, clocking up half reasonable times in the 100 and 200 metres, making it to the state athletics championships just once, so meeting Mel, for me, well, let's call her Mel, because that's what she asked me to call her, it was really a blast. Karina, my wife and I, met her at McDonald's playground in Orange, and she too was giving her kids a play in the playground as she was passing through the town on the equipment. And I said to Karina, look, look who that is. She had no idea who she was. I had to inform her of Mel's athletic prowess. And so I tossed it up. Would I actually go up and chat with her, meet this amazing running legend? Would it be a bit embarrassing to go up and introduce myself? I finally mustered up the courage to say, um, aren't you Melinda Gainsford-Taylor? She was actually great to speak with just briefly, and I hope I didn't weird her out too much. If you've ever come into the presence of greatness, usually you find yourself all of a sudden overawed. Your mouth goes dry, your brain goes to marsh, you can't think of what to say, you open your mouth and just stupid words come out. And you hang off every word, every gesture, every expression of this person that you suddenly find yourself in the presence of. All four of the Gospels really bring us into the presence of true greatness. In each of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, we meet Jesus face to face and we're brought into rooms where we hear him speak, where we see him heal the lame, the blind and the leper. We listen along with the crowds and are brought even closer as we listen with the disciples as they're amazed and confounded and confused and changed by the words of Jesus. Over the next 10 weeks, we'll be looking through John 13 to 17. And in these chapters of John's Gospel, we get to sit into the presence, sit in the presence of greatness in such an amazing and intimate way. We get to sit with the disciples and spend an evening with Jesus over these chapters. Yet, yeah, so John 13 to 17 is just one evening at the table with Jesus. And not just that, this is no ordinary evening. This is the evening before he dies. 
when he shares a meal with his closest friends, teaches them about what is about to unfold, comforts them in their, in their confusion and in their grief, and prepares them for the monumental things that are about to be fulfilled, that are about to happen. And we get to sit with them, listening, watching, wondering in the presence of true and utter greatness. And we too should hang off every word, every gesture, every expression, amazed at the glory, the compassion, the love, the power of this God-man that we sit with. That's what lay ahead. But today, we need to prepare ourselves to sit with him that night. What we'll do is we'll reacquaint ourselves with the Jesus that we meet in the Gospel of John. Jesus, the great I Am, will remind each other of this God-man who came into the world to save sinners. So let's go back to John chapter 1. Let's see... Let's see how John introduces us to this man, Jesus. But, you know, think about the other three Gospels. Mark begins his Gospel with the ministry of John the Baptist. Matthew and Luke begin their Gospels with the birth of Jesus. John, in chapter 1, he goes a lot further back. He takes us right back to the beginning in his narrative. Where he says, in the beginning was the word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus, the Word of God, the eternal Son of God. And as the eternal Son of God, as God the Son, he has all the power and glory of God himself. To see him, to hear him, to know him, is to see Jesus, to hear, Jesus, uh, hear God and know God. Verse 14 of John chapter 1. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And it is this identity of Jesus as God in the flesh that is front and centre throughout the Gospel of John. And one of the ways we see this is not just in his miraculous works, but in the words that he speaks, particularly in a series of I am statements that, that punctuate the gospel and roll through it. John 6.35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. John 8 verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 10 verse 9, I am the gate for the sheep. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. Same chapter, John 10, 14 to 15, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the fathers know me, Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. John 11 verses 25 to 26, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And finally, the greatest I am statement of Jesus in John's Gospel, John 8, verse 58. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. John makes it crystal clear. This interesting, divisive, miracle-working uneducated teacher and preacher was no one less than God in the flesh. 
the living enfleshed word of the eternal and powerful life-giving God, the creator and judge of the earth. That's who Jesus is. So let's go to chapter 12. Come with me to chapter 12. If you haven't got that open quite yet, make sure you do. Open it up to chapter 12 and see how this chapter gets us in the right zone for sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to him. In the beginning of chapter 12, if you have a look at verse 1, it says we're just six days out from the Passover. And so it's just six days before the death of Jesus. Jesus has already said that he will lay down his life for the sheep. The Pharisees and the other leaders of the people are all plotting to be rid of him with increasing vengeance, seeking his life. In 12 verse 3, Mary prepares the body of Jesus for his death and burial, anointing his feet with pure nard in an extravagant gesture of devotion and thanks. And so the death of Jesus is so clearly imminent. And it's in this area of expectation, verse 20, that a group of Gentiles or Greeks approach Philip and ask for an audience with him, with Jesus. And it's in response to this request that Jesus says something absolutely momentous. Verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come, he says. If you go back to John 2 verse 4, when asked by his mother to solve a problem of a lack of wine at a wedding, Jesus initially replied with these words. He says, my time has not yet come. In chapter 7, verse 30, the people tried to seize Jesus, offended by his teaching about his relationship with his father and his unity with him, but they were unable to seize him. Why? Because his time had not yet come. 8, verse 20, the same thing happens again. And Again, we're told his time has not yet come, but these Greeks asked to speak with Jesus. And now the hour has arrived. But this hour that has now just come has not just been coming since the beginning of John's Gospel. No, God's been working towards this moment since before the creation of the world. Ever since God started the clocks of time, for our universe, he's been working towards, looking forward to, bringing about this hour, this moment, the moment when the Son of Man will be glorified. Now is the moment when the glory of the Son, when the glory of God himself will be revealed in a way that it has never been revealed before. And what is about to happen what is it that is about to happen that will reveal to the world this unparalleled glory of God himself? Is it the glory of the resurrection that Jesus is speaking about? Well, yeah, the resurrection is an astounding moment of a revelation of God's glory, but that's not the moment that Jesus is referring to in this verse. The great moment of unparalleled glory is the shame and the horror of the cross. Because that's what he goes on to speak about. He speaks, he initially goes to speak about a death of a kernel of wheat that will bring about life. Then in verse 27, he speaks of his heart being troubled and his longing to be spared from this moment, from this hour that's about to unfold. And it's crystal clear there, he is speaking about his death. How is the death of Jesus, the great moment of the glory of the Son, 
How is the cross, the great moment with the full glory and the wonder of who God is, is revealed to the world? Well, have a look at that illustration of wheat, the kernel of wheat that Jesus uses there. He he compares his life up until that point as that kernel of wheat. And his death and the life that will come from that death, he compares to the multitude of seeds and life that will come out of that event. And I find that comparison really quite striking. Jesus' life up until that point is the single seed. But think about that. What has Jesus been doing? He's been performing miraculous sign after miraculous sign, raising people from the dead, like Lazarus, speaking the truth. He was God come in the flesh to a broken, sinful world. And what Jesus is saying in this illustration is that the seed... The seed is his life. And what will happen through his death and what follows will make what his life has been so far seem almost small. What is it about his death that is so big? In verse 23, it's the moment when the Son of Man is glorified. The death of Jesus is the moment of the glory of God in the Gospel of John. How? How is that the moment of glory? Well, there's three things that, uh, that, that we're told is glorious about this moment of the death of Jesus. And you see them in verses 31 and 32. Verse 31. Now is the time of judgment for this world. God's great final cataclysmic judgment falls on the world through the death of Jesus. God's anger at sin, God's anger at rebellion and the indifference of mankind is poured out in all its frightening and glorious and powerful fury at the cross. Now that might not sound like a moment of glory when you think about it, but it is a moment of furious power unleashed upon the world. The glory of the cross is in the wonder that this final unleashed Fury of God is poured out in time and space and history on God the Son in our place. That is an astounding moment of glory. Second half of verse 31. It is through the death of Jesus that the prince of this world is driven out. Satan, the great deceiver, the great accuser, the enemy of God and his people, He's the one who drew Adam and Eve into his rebellion. And since then, we've been searching for the one who will crush the serpent's head. And while the cross might look like defeat, it looks like Satan wins. In fact, it is Satan's decisive defeat. Through the death of Jesus, Satan is finally crushed, defeated, driven away. Jesus binds Satan who holds humanity captive and he plunders from Satan those who used to belong to him, bringing those people across from the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God through their sins forgiven at the cross. It's a a momentous and glorious moment, that cross. Then in verse 32, it is in the death of Jesus, in his being lifted up as a sacrifice for sins, through that act he will draw all peoples, all nations to himself. And as he does this, he draws them into eternal and life-giving relationship with the Father. 
God's plans to bring his people from all nations into relationship with him will finally be fulfilled in the death of Jesus. The forgiveness of sins will be made available once and for all, for all men and all women of all nations. That's the moment of glory. And it's all of this that shows the power and the wonder and the glory of God, revealed in a way that has never been revealed. At the cross, we, we look in and we see, the very, we see into the very heart of the living God. Have a look at Jesus' words in, in verse 44. When a man believes in me, he does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. When he looks at me, he sees the one who sent me. So when we see Jesus, we see God. When we hear Jesus, we hear God. And in no greater place do we see the power and the wonder and the glory and the beating heart of the living God than when we look and listen to Jesus at the cross. There the very heart of the character of God is laid open so the world can see. Sometimes people do, do things that reveal who they are like no other event in their life to that point. Through words that they say, through actions that they do. It, a, a pivotal moment when their true heart and character is revealed. And those moments are usually moments of crisis. Like Winston Churchill in World War II. Up until then, he was an unpopular leader who made some decisions that led to absolute disaster and destruction in Gallipoli. That was his brainchild. But when World War II broke across the Western Europe, it was then that Churchill's true colours shone brightest. His dogged tenacity, his unwillingness to enter into negotiations with Nazi Germany when so many people wanted to, his unwillingness to accept defeat, his ability to see solutions when everybody else just saw disaster. It was his moment of glory. And the world saw it. The cross... That's the event. That's the crisis point where the true character and the heart of God, the glory of God, is unveiled for all to see. But in this passage, not only do we see the glory of God at the cross of Christ, we also see the darkness and the blindness of the world, the sinfulness and the ignorance and the hard-heartedness of humanity. Have a look at verse 37. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, still they would not believe him, says John. Why not? They'd seen Jesus turn water into wine. They'd seen him raise a child on the brink of death. They'd seen him feed multitudes from a kid's lunchbox and heal a lame man and a blind man and raise four-day dead Lazarus from the grave. But they still won't believe. But the problem's not a lack of proof. The problem's not a lack of evidence. It's all there before them. The problem, the reason they don't believe, is the brokenness of their heart, the hard-heartedness of men and women who refuse to bend the knee to the king of the universe. They refuse to see what is plain before their eyes because if they do accept it, then they need to come under his authority and accept his rule and lay down their crown at his feet. 
Have a look at the way that John puts it in chapter 12, verse 25. The one who loves his life will lose it, while the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. It's a really profound way to put it, isn't it? People don't believe. They don't accept life from the Son. They refuse to recognise their Creator who dies in their place because they love their life. They love their control of their life, the things of this life, the pleasures and the power and the significance and the achievements of this life, and they don't want to let these go and turn to Jesus who claims ultimate authority and promises true life. If only they bend the knee. But if you really want life, true eternal life, that lasts the finality and the horror of death, then Jesus says you need to hate your life. What can Jesus mean by saying that? To hate our life means to realise the error, the sin of seeking life in what we can do, in what we can achieve and enjoy in this world without God. It is to hate the way that we treated God with indifference and unbelief and know that the only true life is found in submission to the one who gives that life. And it is to decide, to long for, to yearn for the praises of God and the love of God rather than the praise and the love of others. Have a look at verse 42. Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. I mean, that sounds positive, doesn't it? But but because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. These people that are mentioned here in these verses think they believe. When they're with others who might think the same way, they're happy to say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. But when it comes to the crunch, they love what other people thought of more than they loved what God thought of them. And so they really didn't believe in Jesus. It's a ridiculous way to think when you consider it, isn't it? We love the fickle, the temporary praise of one another more than the eternal and steadfast praise and love of God, our Creator, our loving, heavenly Father. It's a deplorable way to treat the living God, isn't it? Is that you? Do you love the praise of others more than the praise of God? Do you love the things that you have in the here and now and hold God at best at arm's length? Loving your own life so much that you ignore the living and loving sacrificial God who died and took the punishment for you. If that's you, and you realise that maybe for the first time today, don't wait to put things right with God. Get things right now. Recognise the horrible way you treated the living God. And say to him, say, speak to him and say, sorry. I'm so sorry for the way I've treated you. Ask for forgiveness and see the wonder of losing your life now to find life and forgiveness for eternity in Jesus. Find the wonder of reveling in the praise that comes only from God. But for most of us, we've already made peace with God, found joy in hating our life in this world and found true and eternal life in Christ. But we too, don't we so easily fall into the trap of loving the praise of one another of the world more than the praise of God? 
We're too afraid to stand with Jesus when we're around those who don't. We might not get thrown out of the synagogue as those people did in Jesus' day, but we might fear ridicule, rejection and misunderstanding, possibly even hatred. And we fear it and instead what we need to do, instead of fearing men, we need to stand with Jesus because he stood in for us. As we continue to look through chapters 13 to 17 in the coming weeks, as, as we come week to week to sit at the feet of Jesus with the disciples and hear his words, let's be prepared to be wowed by the wonder of what he did for us again. Let's be prepared to look into the wonder of the Trinity that we see in these chapters, the Father, the Son and the Spirit who loves us, who prays for us, who is present with us and in us and at work through us. This next nine weeks promises to be a great time for us to meet Jesus again and again and again, to come into the presence of true greatness, to hear him speak and to continue to let his word encourage and challenge and rebuke and change and inform and move us. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you sent your Son. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came into our broken world and the darkness and the blindness and the ignorance that was in it and you suffered under that ignorance and sin and finally in death. Thank you for the wonder and the glory of the cross. Thank you that Satan has been defeated. Thank you that the judgment has been poured out on you instead of us so that we can be brought into your presence and be your children. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be people who do not love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Help us to hate our life and love the life that you give us. And we pray these things in Jesus' great name. Amen.